2: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, brought to you from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. My guest on this episode, Amy Jeffs, is an artist and art historian whose debut book, Storyland, retells the founding myths of Britain for modern audiences. She's just published a sequel, Wild, which uncovers stories of wilderness from the medieval world alongside her own experiences of bringing these tales to life. Here's our conversation. Amy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Fittingly, for someone who writes about Britain's origin stories, can we start with your personal origin story? What drew you to the medieval period, and more specifically to a mythic and fantastical version of that time? Were you destined to become a medievalist from childhood, or is it an interest that developed more gradually?
0: I think I always had an interest in the arcane as a child. And in wildlife and museums, in old things and old stories, I can't remember i mean i i i went off uh, I thought I'd go to art art school you know through my teens, and then I ended up applying for a course at Cambridge called Anglo-Saxon Norse and Celtic because I completely fell in love with the idea of studying old english and um and old Norse, but mostly old english and uh, And so I went off and did that and that, that really ignited something. And I just read and read and, uh, and we, we took courses in paleography. So the history of medieval scripts in codecology. So looking at how books were made, manuscript production, had wonderful teachers. And it was just, it was just wonderful. So it was really, it was at that point, age 18, that um, I, I was really set on this path. And I've never got off, even though I did, tra- I transferred to art history for my final year, but I've, uh, apart from kind of methodology courses, never really gone beyond 1500. So don't ask me any questions about anything that's happened any time after then up to today.
2: Okay, we'll stay out of the renaissance.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
2: <laughs> Your first book, Storyland, retells myths of origin from medieval Britain. And your new book, Wild, is a continuation of that project, telling stories of the medieval wilderness. Who did medieval Britons believe themselves to be? What world did they inhabit?
0: So I suppose it depends who, who we're talking about. So let's, let's take the, the Britons, as you, as you said, the Celts. In the mid-12th century, a cleric called Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote a text called The History of the Kings of Britain. He was a Welshman a Briton, descended from the Britons. And he was writing for an elite Norman audience. And he takes a sort of a patchwork of earlier uh, British sources and makes up quite a lot himself ostensibly and tells a story of a Briton which is descended from a Trojan called Brutus, who gives Britain his name, who was exiled from Italy after the fall of Troy. He's a descendant of Aeneas who led the Trojans out of Troy. Wanders the Mediterranean is told by the the goddess Diana that he will found a race of kings on an island in the Western Ocean that is uninhabited, but for a few giants. And he, he travels there with his fleet and with a following of other Trojans and sets up home after defeating the giants. Uh, so that's really where the, where the Britons saw themselves having originated, at least from the, from the mid 12th century with this, with this text by Geoffrey of Monmouth. And that became the dominant sort of origin, founding myth of Britain until well into the 16th century. And it's so mad that most of us don't know it. We don't hear it in school or anything like that because, you know, it's, it's the idea that, that the Britons came from the heartlands of North Africa and the southern Mediterranean is, just so exciting that there are giants and goddesses that there is there are exiles there are you know uh wrestling matches between giant killers and uh and a great giant called Gogmagog on the cliffs near Totnes, you know <laughs> and this was but this was the like definitive history of britain for centuries so that's that's where the britons came from uh if we're going to go right back to the very first day of it all
2: and they thought themselves to be on the periphery of the world, rather than as one might expect, the centre. Can you speak a little about that?
0: Yeah, so I mean, they still kind of saw themselves at the centre. It's a different, it's a different uh, worldview. So we position north at the top of the map. You know, north is north's up, <laughs> as it were. And uh, but the medieval map is has east at the top, and the Garden of Eden, the the, the birth of the or the origin of the rising sun. The centre of the map is the location of Jerusalem, uh, and Britain is is way off, like on the edge of the map, down in the in the northwest, and it's this tiny little island. It's completely insignificant. And what the origin myths of of the Britons and the Scots, and also the Germanic tribes that um, that came to migrate to Britain uh, and call themselves the English. All of their origin myths, by the mid, mid mid to late Middle Ages, have uh, come from all of their founding mothers and fathers come from places like Syria or uh, Egypt or Greece or Troy, and those all of those places are in the centre of the map, sort of clustered around or near Jerusalem in the medieval way of seeing things. And so, although Britain's this little island, this insignificant island way out in the Western Ocean, its peoples as they saw it, were from those authoritative, powerful heartlands, the seat of the classical and biblical traditions. And so although geographically they're not the centre of the world, there is a sort of argument that they are.
2: Ethnically from the centre, I suppose. Yes, yes. Wild tells myths of wilderness, and nature is often presented as harsh, cruel and cold, rather than bucolic and pastoral. What did the wild mean in the medieval period? and what lessons do you think we in the present could learn from that perspective
0: right okay so it meant many things it was rich in meaning the the wilderness was not morally neutral it had it had lessons to teach wild and stormy weather in in certain old english poems like the phoenix is described as a symptom of a postlapsarian world so a world that has fallen humanity has fallen from a state of grace and so uh, where there are there is human sin there is also uh, stormy weather and uh, you know portents in the sky, lightning, that sort of thing. Uh, it's a symptom of of human sin, and so I mean the world could could also be a way of of um, wild weather could be a way of God demonstrating his his displeasure with uh, human behaviour. I'm interested in in the strange elision we get now between how our behaviour is impacting. Wild weather, and how wild weather was perceived then. Of course, we don't think that uh, our vices are impacting the wilderness, but actually, perhaps they are. You know, that's that's this that may be one of the the associations I, I wanted to um, explore with, with the book.
2: And many of the stories in Wild are retold from the perspective of borderline characters, women, monsters, and animals. What drew you to the figures in the margins, and what did you hope to achieve by placing them centre stage?
0: Well, I just have gone with the ones that I thought were most interesting. You know, one of the animals that plays a is a significant part is the whale, uh, but not the whale as we know it now. This is the early medieval, actually, the, and a sort of late antique conception of the whale, which is this great sea monster with a, a semblance of mountains and valleys and rivers on its back that it pushes above the waves, and it will sit there and pose as an island until sailors attempted to moor their boats, and uh, and disembark and build fires on its back. And as soon as it feels the flame touch its skin, it will dive and drag those sailors to the abyss. And we're told in um, in a Greek text called the Physiologus that was translated into old English from poems that we find in a, a wonderful manuscript called the Exeter Book, that the uh, we should understand the whale as a symbol of the devil. Like, so too, the devil will pose as a safe harbour and a safe place for us to make camp. But in reality, he will drag us to the abyss. And so that's, you know, I think that was just a great story. So it wasn't a kind of, I wasn't making a big political statement, bringing this whale in from the margins. In the same way, the, the poems that really captured my imagination. So, I mean, wild is it's structured across seven chapters they're earth ocean forest fen beast catastrophe paradise and each chapter starts with a short story and ends with a commentary and each short story is inspired by real life surviving poems and artifacts and um the poems that that really served as the pole star for this project were a, a group called the old english elegies and i first encountered them when i was 18 and was immediately of haunted and in love with them, haunted by and in love with them. They are. They. Um, one is about. Is, it's told from perspective of a woman, who is longing for someone she calls Wolf. She says, wolf's is on an island. I'm on another. Wolf is on Eiland. It's another. Fast is that Eiland fenneby Worpen, you know, safe is that island surrounded by fens." she describes somebody who, uh, a warrior who wraps his limbs around her and the word she uses for limbs is a very dog-like word it's a word that kind of means animal legs she says was me huintathon, was me was joyful to me but was also hateful and the poem kind of reaches this this climax where she says can you hear me treasure guardian uh, wolf is bearing our wretched whelp to the woods and it's this Incredibly it made it rich in longing and desperation and confusion in these kind of wild imagery of the fens, of the wolf, of the woods. And I was just completely bewitched by, by that poem and, and others in, in this group that are found in the Exeter book as an undergraduate and then doubly bewitched by them when, I suppose it was when lockdown hit and, and the themes of exile and isolation the transience of life and all these things are sort of suddenly in the media. And those are what are central to these poems. And so it just so happens that the protagonists, the narrators of these poems seem to be women and outcasts. And so they, they've ended up becoming central to this book, but it's by dint of the beauty of, of the poetry.
2: You travelled into the wilderness yourself when you were writing the book. How did your lived experiences of the landscape inflect your retellings of these medieval tales?
0: well i think that you know, there are so many uh, you know, the, the landscape plays a very important role in many storytelling traditions and uh, and when we when we read retellings of king arthur so often there's a sort of doughty knight riding through a forest or uh going over hills and down dale and that sort of thing and i i love nature i love the nature's aesthetic potential uh, i love wandering around in the woods and getting lost and being very romantic about it all and I thought that for me, the thing that would bring these stories to life is to to be accurate in my descriptions of nature, um, not necessarily like giving all of the names of all of the flora and fauna, but actually in the the feelings of it or the, and in some cases, you know, identifying the fact that there are charms of goldfinches on the banks of Loch Etive, that so that if somebody was from there who was reading the book, they would sense that they would have a moment of uh, of recognition and feel that their own sort of their own home was was seen in the book and and that it had a connection to these these stories from the past and i thought it made it more beautiful to to you know when i was describing a, a dog running up the banks of cangafelt so, you know, king arthur's dog actually Kabal, okay. after whom the uh, hill is was named that the the boulders on that hillside are all completely covered in very soft thick moss and that just is a gift, I suppose, as a writer, to have those, that variation, the things that will give each story its particular atmosphere uh, or like vivid um, quality and differentiate them from each other, is those the ways in which the landscapes of Britain vary so greatly.
1: Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D.
2: Ah, mmm.
1: The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive, sought after, rare, and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.
2: You mentioned uh, at the beginning your interest in becoming an artist, and both Wild and Storyland are lavishly illustrated. Can you describe to the listeners what to expect? To see in these books,
0: well, in in Storyland there are Lino cuts. Storyland was started with Lino cuts. I was, I was completing my thesis and started illustrating the the origin myth of Britain that I was talking about earlier, and it was from that pile of of illustrations that I I sort of. But the book as it were and that's what I took to my agent before I I started working with her and what I took to publishers and was able to kind of storyboard the book. I think you know when you tell people that you've you think that the stories in the 12th century Historia Regan Britanniae by Geoffrey of Monmouth are really interesting they just instantly glaze over but if you show them a picture of a giant being thrown off a cliff and a goddess um, rising out of the flames and giving a prophecy to a, a tiny little man in the corner then there's a there's you don't have to, you don't have to argue for the the brilliance of the stories. It's already there. So, you know, Storyland has illustrations in every chapter. It's also structured with stories, which are retellings as opposed to original stories for, by um, commentaries. In Wild, the stories are, are original, but inspired by these poems and artifacts I've been talking about. And each chapter has one opens with a wood engraving. Now I, I'm, I'll like nerd out a bit about the wood engravings because with the lino cuts I had to I, I carved them on on about a block that was about A five. And then for them to go into the book they had to be shrunk down. So it looks kind of cleverer, like more detailed carving than I actually did. I'm proud of them, but it was um there's something perhaps not quite straightforward about that. Whereas with the wood engraving, which was is you you do wood engraving on the end grain of very slow grown slow growing timbers like boxwood. So they never really get much bigger than, I don't know, a a saucer from a cup and saucer, for instance. It was a medium that was invented in the 19th century to go into traditional printing presses to to produce uh, illustrations for newspapers and things. Uh, It's different from woodcut. Sorry, I'm going very deep with this, but it's different from woodcut, which is a medieval medium, which is carved into into timber that's been cut on the plank. So along the length of the grain as opposed to into the end grain. So wood engravings are very small. Woodcuts can be bigger. I wanted the wood engravings in wild to be reproduced exactly to scale, so 7.5 by 10 centimetres. So that they would have that feeling of a book that had been produced in a traditional press as if the block had just been dropped in, the illustrated block had been dropped into the text block and passed through the press. And this is what you have in your hand, because I have a great reverence for, for handmade books and and the craft of book production and think we can evoke that still, albeit in, a, in an age that, that mass produces them.
2: You've alluded to the fact that this is an anachronistic style of illustration that would not have been familiar to medieval readers. But even in the Middle Ages themselves, illustrations were quite anachronistic.
0: Yes, yeah. So I think this is uh, one of the interesting things. My, I mean, my, my PhD was in history of art, and I was looking at illustrations of these secular histories uh, in manuscripts. And so they, these are hand-drawn illustrations. They're not prints. And they don't have – although the the – Characters that they're illustrating are, are are in stories, from stories set, you know, way before the birth of Christ or during the Roman period or whatever it is. They are always shown in... Pretty much contemporary dress. So if the manuscripts from 1340, the characters in the images will be dressed in lovely 1340 split hemmed robes with red lining and green on the outside and their pointy shoes. And, you know, as, as it gets further through the 14th century, their skirts get shorter and their tights get tighter. And so it's this real sense of like that keeping up with fashion, these are fashionable objects. And they depict contemporary fashion, even though they tell stories that are set in the deep past. And that really took the pressure off me, I think, because I, you know, I wanted to illustrate these stories in a way that honoured the sources. Uh, But I didn't feel that I had to put them in some kind of pseudo medieval costume. There's also, I think, the danger then, and it felt like a danger for me, although there's nothing morally wrong with it, um, of like tapping into the kind of Tolkien tradition of illustration where there's this like pan medieval I think it sort of starts with the pre-Raphaelites and the kind of you've got Arthur and his knights in in what is essentially early 15th century costume, even though the stories are set um, in the 4th and 5th centuries AD. So like, a, you know, maybe a thousand years before. And that just is a bit of a minefield for me as an art historian, I suppose. And I also was interested in the the emotional immediacy of the stories and trying to find those moments that, that where the characters are archetypes for maternal pride or... Uh, brotherly love or uh, extinction or vocation or whatever it might be. And so I I mostly depict them as silhouettes or nude or with um, very simple kind of signifier type costumes like a crown or an opulent fur collar to show that they're wealthy. And I hope that that kind of would create a kind of contemporary feel without it being jarring aesthetically and without it being too anachronistic in the sense of giving them medieval costumes they wouldn't actually have worn.
2: In the audiobook, you've replaced the illustrations with folk songs. Can you speak about what you were trying to convey in these songs and whether the process of making them changed your perception of the myths themselves? Did it make you reflect on the differences between uh, experiencing myths as written word or as oral tradition?
0: Oh yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because it was a really exciting moment. Um, I wrote songs when I was writing Storyland just to help think around the stories and to try and find that kind of emotional nexus that that mattered to me about each story. How what was I going to focus on? And then with Wild, I asked the publishers, "Could we illustrate the audiobook with songs? Because, of course, in the audiobook, that you can't carry the wood engravings across." And uh, to my amazement and delight, they said yes. And Writing them, I suppose, it, it songs are so atmospheric. They have such atmospheric potential. And I feel the same about wood engraving with its black ink and its it's uh its miniature scale and it's this kind of this world and and I think so much about convincing yourself that what you're writing is worthwhile is is, is finding it beautiful. So I find wood engravings very beautiful. I find I found the process of writing the songs a way of homing in on that that beauty. Whether it's a, like a dark macabre beauty or like a really joyful one, you know, because the, the book wild definitely travels from a kind of very dark place to a quite a light one, I think. Um, and that's traced with the song. So I think they're kind of like amplify the atmosphere of each chapter. And they did it, for, they did that for me in the process of writing it. And I hope they'll do it for listeners as they are, as they travel through the book.
2: What was your favorite myth and why?
0: Uh, in Storyland, okay. Storyland's got myths in, and World is isn't so much about myth; it's more about um, half-forgotten stories that okay that seem uh, to be what, more what personal.
2: Was, what was your favourite myth or half-forgotten story? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, okay, uh, so currently, I'm 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 very excited about World because it is actually publication day today, so I'm I'm focusing on that. I loved telling the story that comes first in Wild with the chapter entitled Earth. It's about a female ghost who is trapped underground and you don't find out why until the end. And she's got a great grievance and you don't find out about that until the end either. And she is in a state of forgetfulness and the, pro- the story is basically her coming to remember. But the... The sources that inspired it are a poem called The Wife's Lament, known as The Wife's Lament. These are sort of modern titles they've been given about a woman, a female. It seems to be a woman, the narrator. And she describes being trapped in an earthen dugout under an oak tree, surrounded by briars, encircled by mountains or hills, unable to leave. And she's trapped there as she watches the summer sun kind of creep by this, this endless northern summer sun that will never seem to set, and she describes how she's being told to wait there by someone she calls her lord, and she says that all her friends are are kind of resting, and it's unclear whether she means they're dead or um or uh, just somewhere else having a nice time. And her relationship to this one that she calls the lord sort of shifts as the poem progresses, and initially she seems to be kind of devoted to him, but then her her rage begins to kind of rise and it turns into a, into what's effectively a curse and she can she condemns him. She uh, she says, uh, you know, she hopes that he will experience exile, but not the kind of exile she's experiencing, the kind where he's out on the ocean and there's nothing for Mars around and he is alone and only has the memories of joy to comfort him. And it's such a powerful poem. It's It's in Old English. It's in a manuscript called The Exeter Book. Uh, which is in Exeter Cathedral, has been there since 1072, which is bonkers. And it, it doesn't give away its full its full narrative. It's, it sits among riddles with a selection of other poems known as the Elegies. Uh, and all of them could be riddles, probably aren't, seem to allude to some larger narrative, but might not, and have these tense emotional situations at the centre that are very... Uh, rooted in in the natural world and they they take great you know the really powerful descriptions of nature and juxtapose them with really powerful descriptions of emotion and I just think they they're so inspiring so that's my answer
2: well I think that has brilliantly whetted the appetites of our listeners for wild (laughs) and the stories within Amy Jeffs thank you so much for joining me on the how to academy podcast
0: thank you so much for having me
2: this episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Amy Jeffs and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. The series is made by myself and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong, and our editor is John Doughty. To play us out, here's Amy's musical version of the story of the whale. Until next time, thanks for listening. the fathoms of the ocean wide silent the abyss how still my grave is i can't believe